Are you excited? It's okay if I'm the only one. It's all right. Tonight, the fun begins for me. Tonight, we get into something that I've been looking forward to. It's one of my favorite things to get into, and it's eschatology. Wow, it's the good stuff. It's one of my favorite things to talk to, not because of an arguing point, but because it's more than anything in Bible, it is this subject that has changed my life, drawn me closer to God than anything else in Scripture. It has changed me dramatically. In fact, the only reason that I'm here teaching is because of this. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to explain that to you later, but at the same time, it seems strange that I'm here. When uh, Joplin called, he says, you want to teach the book of Isaiah? And I go, whoa, that's a lot. And I started looking through it. And I go, wait a minute. Isaiah chapter 4, the branch. Beautiful and glorious. Oh, yeah. Oh, Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, wait a minute. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf and the lamb will lay down together. Isaiah chapter 52, 53, the cross. Whoa. And then I go, have you read the last few chapters? The last section of Isaiah and how we are going to and the world we're going to live into, it's awesome. All my favorite stuff is here, but what in the world am I doing teaching it? And let me explain why I feel that way. You back up 40 years, almost to the day. I headed for Florida with my sister. I was in Maine. I had gotten out of the Army. I had gone to uh, Heston, got my pilot's license, and I decided I was going to go back to college. I had been to Bible college once before in Texas, walked out right in the middle of the semester, totally fed up. I'm, I'm not doing this. And decided I was going to give it another try. This time I was going to go to a different school in Florida. So I headed off for Florida with my sister. I dropped her off. I think it was Toccoa Falls. And I headed for Lakeland, Florida, where a Bible school was, uh, which was with the association that I had been raised in. Uh, dropped her off and arrived in school one month early before the semester started. Walked into the front office. I says, can I check in? She says, sure. So I got an apartment. I says, uh, what do I do for a month? She says, well, we've got a two-week class. You'll get a full credit uh, for a college class for if you take it for two weeks. It's a mid-semester class. And I go, oh, great. I said, what's the subject? She says, you go to school all day. For, and just do one subject. I said, what's the subject? She goes, eschatology. And I looked at her and I go, what is eschatology? I didn't have a clue. She says, it's a study of future things. And I go, oh, okay, I can do that. In fact, you know what, that's a good idea because uh, studying eschatology, that's a controversial subject. I, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to take two weeks and do nothing. Instead of having three or four subjects, I'm just going to concentrate on one subject. It's perfect. This is exactly what I want to do. Perfect timing. Walked into class, and they introduced the class as, oh, it is a privilege to be here. It is an honor because we're going to have not one, but two of the best teachers that have ever existed on the planet are going to teach your class. They are the sages of the faith, and between them, these old guys, they have at least 60 years of experience between them. You don't realize what an honor it is to be under these men's teaching. That's how they introduced it. And I go, all oh, right, yes, okay, I'm all ears. And so they said, take 
a notebook, take notes. At the end of two weeks, turn in your notebook. I said, all right. Started writing. Guy goes in. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. I didn't know that. I didn't know. What, what are you talking about? I didn't have a clue. Went to lunch, came back, and the second man walked in, and he comes in, and he goes, boom, throws his books right on the desk, makes a huge racket, and goes, I was going to teach you this, but you guys are so messed up now, i got to fix what you learned this morning. And you know what it was? For two weeks, it was one big argument between two sages of the faith. And, you know, buddy, I'd agree with you, but we'd both be wrong, okay? So it was that kind of deal. I got to the end of two weeks. I turned in my notebook, got a grade, and threw it in the trash. I didn't have a clue. Eschatology, <laughs> I, I was more confused now than when I took the class. Okay, I was. I didn't, I didn't have a clue. What am I doing tonight teaching eschatology? What am I doing here? Let me tell you, I almost walked away from school. I did. I was so angry and so confused because it really, really bothered me that two guys, the sages of the faith, could not agree on what the Bible said. And what really bothered me was, one of them's wrong. How can you teach for 30 or 40 years and stand before God and say, this is what I taught? He says, you're an idiot. You're wrong. I, I said, you know what? I'm setting myself up for the same thing. And what really bothered me is, you know, guys can make mistakes. You know, I can be a, a police officer and arrest him and put him in jail for something he did wrong. I can be a doctor, make a mistake, and they can die. Okay, but more important than that, there's more responsibility than that if you teach somebody the Bible and you teach them wrong. The weight of responsibility that I felt, it, what I just went through in that class, it hit me. I can't do that. I cannot stand in front of somebody and, and after 40 years stand in front of them and be wrong. And these guys had done it. Maybe both of them were wrong. What am I doing here? Am I going to sit here and throw something at you and think there's a possibility that I'm wrong? What I'm teaching you tonight affected me for eternity. What I'm teaching you tonight and I'm going to teach you for a while, if God allows, will affect you for all eternity, depending on how you, you take it. That's a huge weight of responsibility. It bothered me so much, I said, I'm giving up. I'm walking away. I, I don't want that weight. I didn't even want to be a teacher anyways. I, honestly, I don't know why I'm doing here sometimes. I'm, I'm telling the truth. I don't know why God called me. I've never had a desire to do it. But I'm dead positive in fact, I'm afraid what God would do to me if I walked away. So how did I get from there to here? And this is really strange. I wrote a pastor who had started a church near the Army base when I'd been in the Army. We had briefly gone to the same college in Texas. I told him what I just told you. He immediately wrote me back a short letter, and he guess where he, what he said. He said, Gary, read Isaiah. Not kidding. Read this. And he pointed me to a section in Isaiah. And when we get to it, I'm going to show you what he showed me. It was there that it started my journey to where I got here tonight. What was hugely, hugely important to me was I can't be wrong here. I can't. 
I can't be wrong. What we're talking about tonight with me, it's not just a fun thing to debate and I, and I want to win the argument. That's not how I approach this. I want to be right. Oh, yeah, I like to argue. I like to debate. But, you know, in my experience, debating does very little. I believe God has to show us the truth. And how you approach the scripture and how you approach God greatly affects your understanding of God's word. And if I wasn't positive, if I wasn't sure that this is what God had showed me, I wouldn't be here right now. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's pray before we begin. Our Father in heaven, we come to a sovereign God. You are my God. And Father, you have made it clear that everything comes from you. If we are to understand your word, it is a gift from you. It is because you have allowed the Holy Spirit to enlighten your word and to explain it to us and let us to see. You don't do that for everybody. And I would that tonight that you would help us to have the right attitude that we would come to a sovereign God who is holy and awesome and deserves the right attitude and that you would grant us by your grace and your mercy the privilege and honor and the beauty of understanding what it is you want us to see. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 2, would you turn there, please? I We're going to continue the adventure. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's just read the first five verses. Isaiah chapter 2, read verses 1 through 5 with me, please. It says, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, what are we doing here so far? It's been a while since we've been here. We've got a review, and we're going to see that this chapter fits perfectly with what he's just said in chapter 1. Let me see if we can explain. But first, let's review a little bit, see where we're at. It's all about God's glory. What's God's glory? Glory is when you look at something, examine it, and when you walk away, you will always have a good opinion. And it's all about God's glory. Anytime you look at God... If you discover a truth about God, and it's true, it will always lead to a good opinion about God. If you ever look at something about God, walk away, and your conclusion is that there's something wrong with God or you have a bad opinion, it's not true. God will always, in his truth, display glory. And that's what we're doing here. That's what's most important to God. It, Isaiah is writing to defend God's glory. He has to write about it here because what? Something is happening to bring God's glory into question. It is the nation of Israel. 
Israel was not glorifying God the way they were supposed to. They were created for God's praise. It says that. Salvation was of the Jews, but the world was living in darkness, and the Jewish program started by God appears to be, for the most part, a complete failure. How can you look at the nation of Israel or what they've been through so far and say, God's people, God's program? Uh, the world is looking at that, and they're going, what are they saying? Where is Israel's God? Okay? They are blaspheming God because of Israel. God, you're not getting any glory out of this. Isaiah is written to explain this. He gives a prophet, a commission, and some visions to answer that question. And when he does, he calls right off the bat in chapter 1, he calls all of creation. He calls all angels, all nations, all people, even creation itself. All hands on deck. Listen to what I've got to say. You know what that means? What we're about to get into is very, very important to God. When he is explaining what's going on with Israel, he is defending his glory, and he wants everybody to hear it. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. He will say it very clearly in chapter 43. Let me read it to you. Everyone who is called by my name and what he's doing there, the ones that is called by his name, he's talking about the believing remnant that will one day do what they're supposed to do. He says, whom I created, what? For my glory. Go down to verse 21. He says, the people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. They're not doing it now, but the day is coming when the remnant will declare his praise. So what has he said so far in chapter 1? After calling all hands on decks, he says, listen, they've abandoned me. I didn't abandon them. They willfully, deliberately, aggressively abandoned me. This is not about me giving up on them. They walked away from me. Sinful nation, weighed down with iniquity. He calls them all these names. Then he says, what more could I have done? I disciplined you. You're covered with discipline and what was the result? They refused to respond. So he's done everything he could do. They then, in chapter 1, what do they do is they defend themselves. What about all this worship that we're doing? The temple is here. We're offering sacrifices. We're praising. We're, we're doing all the festivals. They're worthless to me. That is not a defense. In fact, it's one of the things I have against you because while you're doing that, what else are you doing? You're going over here and you're worshiping idols. You're committing spiritual adultery, and I'm jealous, and I'm angry. Now, Solomon tells us that when Israel got into this situation, God gave him a way of escape. What was it? Solomon said that if you will raise your hands, repent, and pray, what? Towards the temple. I will, and he gave six and seven different examples of situations where God would judge them for their sin if you will do this, I will forgive and I will heal you. So what are they doing? They turn around and they pray. They do what Solomon taught them to do. And what happened? Your hands are covered in blood. So he repeats. He says, it's not working. All that stuff, all your defense for all the judgment that I'm giving on your sin, it's not a defense for what I'm doing to you. 
you're guilty, I'm going to judge you, and the discipline's going to stop, and instead of discipline, I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to take you out. And that's why we're here in this book. When he takes Israel out, he has to explain, wait a minute, God, did you fail? Is the Israel program, is it over? Uh, God? Got some questions here, and that's what we're answering. He tries to get them to repent. They don't. He repeats the Mosaic Covenant, and then he describes Jerusalem. The faithful city has become a harlot. She was full of justice. Now she's not anymore. Now she's full of murderers. Remember that word means paid assassins? And all the leaders, the judges, what are they doing? They're taking bribes. And so you've got a horrible situation there. You've got a second thing. They're being judged. At this time, it says that Jerusalem is like a besieged city. What is it? Assyria has got them surrounded. Life is miserable. They know war. They know injustice inside and out. So what's the answer? The answer is that God is not done yet. He is going to show them a future city. And in that future city, he's going to show them this is what you're supposed to be, and this is what you will one day be. And that's where we're at right now. When we pick up chapter 2, that's what we're doing. He is showing these people, okay? You see how chapter 2 and the vision fits perfectly with what he said in chapter 1. Because he's going to show them this is what you are now, this is what you one day will be, and that, what does that do? That defends his glory, because it starts to answer very well the question, God, did you fail with Israel? The answer is very clearly, no, I'm not done yet, okay? And that's what he's doing over and over and over again. So here we go. We've got a second vision, chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2. And notice verse 1 says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem. Remember that the kingdom is divided. Why does he say Judah and Jerusalem? Because that's all that's left. The, top, the divided kingdom, what happened to the top ten? During the rule of Ahaz in 722, what has happened to them? Assyria comes, takes them away, scatters them throughout the world. This is all that's left. They are given more of a chance. They actually, for a while, had some good kings and were doing better than the top ten northern tribes. Okay, So he's dealing with the southern kingdom, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which isn't mentioned uh, after this, and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom. It is also what? It is where the center of worship was. Jerusalem is where the temple was. If you wanted to worship anybody in the world, if you wanted to find God, where did you go? You went to Jerusalem. It is the center of worship. If you wanted to find God, that's where you went. So, the faithful city. Now, it's interesting. He says, I saw a word. Now, he uses a different word than he did in the first vision. This is a second vision. The first vision, he says, the vision that I saw, this time he says he saw a word. He didn't see a, a vision, he sees a word. He uses a different Hebrew word. 
Instead of hazan, which is H-A-Z-O-N, he uses debar. It means a promise, a doctrine. I don't know how he saw a word and then gives pictures of a Jews. I don't know. That's kind of strange to me. But I'm wondering if uh, Isaiah actually used the world's first teleprompter, because that's what it looks like he's doing. Okay? So he starts chapter 2 with a second separate vision. This vision goes from verse 1 of chapter 2 through chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. It's all one vision. Okay? These next 2, 3, 4, 5, those four chapters are all the second vision. Okay? <clears throat> now, what he's going to do here is he's going to start looking to the future. He has already looked at the future. In chapter 1, he's already looked. Let me show you. In chapter, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. He's already been leaning this way before he gets here. Look into the future. He says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors. What's that? That is the future remnant. The few believers that will be left after the judgment. There will always be a few. He can't wipe Israel out completely or he'll never be able to fulfill the, the, uh, the covenant and the promises he made him. He won't be able to make all these prophecies if Israel stops to exist. So there always has to be some. And it's not just a few left. He always paints them in the picture as this is a believing remnant. Okay, So we're already looking to the future in verse 9. And then the future has already been in defense if you look at... Start in verse 25 and see what he said about Israel and for the purpose of what he's doing. I will, verse chapter 1, verse 25, I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your drosses with lye and will remove all your alloy. He's looking to the future. There is a purpose for what he's doing to these people right now. Then, look into the future, he says, then... I will restore your judges at the first, and your counselors is at the beginning. After that, after the judgment, you will be called what? A city of righteousness, a faithful city. What was she called before? She's called Sodom and Gomorrah. She's called a harlot. But the day is coming when she will not be called that. She will be called a faithful city, a city of righteousness. What will she do? Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So he's already looked at the future. He's always said there's a future city coming, okay? So now you see where everything begins to fit. Chapter 2 is a separate vision, but you see how it fits with chapter 1. He's already said there's a future city coming. Here it is. This vision starts with a look at that city he was talking about, okay? So chapter 2, you see, is a vision of... Another Jerusalem. Now listen, I'm going to throw something at you. There are three Jerusalems in the Bible. Three. Three different Jerusalems. I'm going to throw this and I'm going to explain it, okay? There's the Jerusalem we talked about in chapter 1. The one that we're looking about in the future, I'm going to call that to help organize our thoughts, I'm going to call that the next Jerusalem. There is a third one at the end of the book of Revelation. We'll get a little bit in Isaiah, the new Jerusalem. There is Jerusalem, David's Jerusalem. He captured the city, made it the capital city. It had a history before that, but that's David's Jerusalem, the one we're dealing with in chapter 1, the one that's failing. 
But there is another Jerusalem coming. It's the next Jerusalem. I'm going to explain this, okay? I'm, what are you talking about? I'm going to explain it. I just want to introduce it right now, then I'm going to explain it later, okay? There's the next Jerusalem. This Jerusalem comes when Jesus Christ comes back. He touches down on the Mount of Olives. Boom. Things start to change, okay? This next Jerusalem will take place during the millennial reign, and we're going to talk about that a lot tonight. If I don't hurry up, I'm not going to get there, okay? Then there's a new Jerusalem. That's home. I, guys, you don't realize I, I wanted to start at New Jerusalem. I did. I, that's home. That's where we're going. That's when I get really excited, but I got to wait, okay? That's coming, okay? We're going to talk about the next number two Jerusalem, okay? Now, in this vision, in these four chapters, two, three, four, and five, what Isaiah is doing here is he's got a kaleidoscope, and he's turning the kaleidoscope. He's taking a vision of this future city, okay? In, he, get, he ends that in, in verse five. Then he turns the kaleidoscope again, comes back to now. Then he turns the kaleidoscope and he looks back at the future, at that city again, but this time, instead of a positive way, a very negative way. Okay? Then he does it again. When he does that negative way, you better watch out because the day of the Lord is coming. The earth will it's going to go through some horrible changes, okay? Then he's going to bring it back to the future, okay? So you see what he's doing. He's going future now, future now, okay? He's, and he's drawing contrast. He's, we're going to see. It's going to take some time to show this, but he, he's fitting them together, and there's a reason he does this. He goes future, present, future, present. When he comes back to the present this time, he is talking about how he's going to contend with them. He's going to take away their support, and then he does something, and I, I'm... He goes after the Jewish women, okay? And like I said, I might let Joplin teach that one. I don't know. But then we get to chapter 4. There will be a remnant. He goes back to the future again. There will be a remnant, and the Shekinah glory will return. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. He goes back to the future for a third time. Awesome. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. It's not going to be what you saw in chapter 1. It's going to be awesome. Then he brings it back. This time, he gives a parable about a vineyard. The point of the vineyard parable is, what more could I have done? Then he will give six woes. And those six woes, it summarizes his case against the southern kingdom because of what he says next. They, in verses 24 for 30, at the end of the vision, he will say this. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. On this account, the anger of the Holy One of Israel has turned against his people, and he has stretched out his hands against them and struck them down. And guess what he does? He whistles. You know what happens when he whistles? Babylon comes. He's whistling like he whistles for a dog. Come here, boy. Come here, Babylon. Sick him. Then you know what the last word is? Darkness. Closes out. The parable ends in darkness. Judgment. It's coming. Don't say I didn't warn you. So that's what's going on. Now, 
back to the first section. Now you see what this vision is, trying to give you an overview of the, of the vision. Now come back to the first section. Four verses describe the new, the new Jerusalem that is coming, okay? Now, do I have to quit at 8? Oh, okay, good. All right. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay. See where it says, and it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will come to it. Go down, and it says, why are they going? For the law will go forth from where? Zion. Okay, now listen. Before I get into this, and here's one of those, I, I, I got to tell you, I debated. Do I really want to get into this? But I decided I'm, instead of trying to avoid the subject and kind of smooth over it, I'm going to hit this head on. I'm going to explain to you why I believe what I believe. Okay? In order to do that, I have to get into some controversial stuff. But it's important to me. Okay? And I want you to understand I don't want you to just hear me. I want you to understand why I believe what I believe, okay? Different men, a lot of different men, a lot of good teachers will tell you different. I am going to tell you the literal interpretation of the Bible. Most of the guys that I've talked to in the world today, Baptist preachers in the world that I come from, do not believe in a literal interpretation. They believe in spiritualizing scripture. They believe it's all an allegory. You know what an allegory is? There's a hidden meaning behind it, okay? And you get to pick whatever that hidden meaning is, okay? I don't. I believe it's super important that God stays in charge and that if it says it's Zion, it's Zion. But you know what? I tried to listen to a sermon a couple of days ago. Zion is the church. I pick up every commentary I've got on the book of Isaiah, and all except one, they all say the same thing. Zion is not Israel, it's the church. Guys, Zion is Zion. Israel and Zion has not been replaced by the church. Not in that way. Zion means Zion. Someday, this will literally, completely be fulfilled just as it says it is. If you have a problem with that, you're going to have a really hard time with the book of Isaiah because one of the big themes in the book of Isaiah is I am going to call my people back, and those people that I had Assyria and Babylon take off and destroy and have been judging all these years, I'm going to call for them. And he doesn't say it once. He says it over and over again, and it's the theme of this book. And if you believe the church, you have a lot of trouble interpreting this. Jerusalem means Jerusalem. Zion means Zion. Okay, let me explain something to you why I believe that. Let me give you one example. The Bible describes this new city, this Jerusalem, in detail. And if you compare this Jerusalem in chapter 1 to the next Jerusalem, they're different. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel chapter 48. If I just for fun like to read Ezekiel 47, 48, because it describes the dimensions of the temple, what, this, what the river is going to look like, and what the new city is going to be like in detail, great detail. Let me hear some details. Let me read just a little bit of it. <clears throat> Come to the gates of a square city in Ezekiel chapter 48. 
It says that each wall in this city is 4,500 cubits long. There are 12 gates with three gates on each side. Each one on the north, uh, each tribe is listed and where they're going to be because each gate is assigned a tribe of Israel. There are 12 gates. On the north is Reuben, Judah, and Levi. On the east is Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south is Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the west is Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Ezekiel, in verse 35, listen to what it says. The city will be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day on shall be, what was it called in chapter 1? Called Sodom and Gomorrah. What's it called here? The Lord, and the word Lord there is Adonai. Adonai lives here. That's going to be the name of the new city. The city will be, if you figure out these dimensions and put them in our terminology, the city will be about six miles around. Each side will be less than one and a half miles long. Now, how long was the Jerusalem, and how big was the Jerusalem that we described in chapter 1? We happen to know. Josephus told us. You know how long it was? The new one's going to be six miles. That one was about four. Different dimensions. Zechariah 2 also describes this city. Never in history has this been true, but listen to what Zechariah describes. The population during the millennial reign where this new Jerusalem is, listen to what it says. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. You know what it's saying? The population during the millennial reign is going to be, boom. You think we got a lot of people now. You ain't seen nothing yet. The Bible describes the millennial reign as a time when the population of this earth will explode. And one of the things that's going to happen is that six-mile square city isn't going to be able to hold everybody. They're going to live outside the city. And it describes how the people and the cattle are just everywhere. They're packed. Isaiah even talks about it. In Isaiah, he says, this place is too cramped for me. It's too crowded here. So what happens? They go outside the city. It grows, grows, grows. And guess what they do for walls? Jesus himself comes down and becomes a wall of fire around them. And the Shekinah glory comes back. You guys know what the Shekinah glory is, right? Brilliant light. Remember what was in front when they came out of Egypt? It was in front of them, back in the wall of fire. It's going to be again. It's going to be that way again. Okay? He's going to be a wall of protection around him. Instead of uh, walls of Jerusalem, he's going to be their walls. Now, there's two different cities, two different dimensions, two different descriptions. There's going to be a new city, and Jesus, when he comes down and hits the Mount of Olives, that's when he starts changing literally the whole topography of Israel. We're going to get into a lot of this as we get on it later, but Jerusalem itself, too, will be changed, okay? Let me give you a clue real quick. You notice how it says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills? That is literally going to take place, and we're going to look at it in Zechariah chapter 14. When he hits, you know what happens when Jesus Christ hits the Mount of Olives? Boom! Splits the mountain. Creates a valley that wasn't there before. And then you know what happens? Zechariah, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is fun for me. Literally, it becomes boom, and the whole topography of Israel becomes flat. 
the flattest place in all the earth. And guess what? There's only one place that sticks up. Jerusalem. That's it. And then when he builds that city, we're looking at the description of it right now. Okay? This is going to be literally fulfilled. Now, why does God focus attention on this, this city after the first vision? Okay? Remember, in the first city, we described that life would have been miserable for these people living at Jerusalem in the first Jerusalem for two reasons. We said what? Uh, Assyria has got them surrounded. What do they know? Nothing but war. Uh, Israel from the, uh, the north uh, came down. Their own brothers and cousins and uncles and aunts came down and attacked them. And then Assyria came and surrounded them, and God had to send an angel and back them off, okay? But Assyrians are still there. Their life is miserable. They're under the threat of war constantly, okay? That would have been one thing. But if you're poor or needy and you go to court, what else was happening? The city is full of assassins, and the judges are all, what? They're all corrupt. They're all taking bribes. You're not going to get a fair shake if you go to this judge, okay, in this first Jerusalem. Now... Read, understanding that, now read how he describes this new Jerusalem. Look what he says. Start with verse 4. And he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples. If you want a fair shake, where do you go? All the world will go to a fair judge when they go to what? Jerusalem. Do you see how that contrasts with what the first Jerusalem was going through? Second contrast. They knew war. Look what it says. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Okay? Now, now that you see that, do you see now why he says, verse 5, now you're talking to a people oppressed inside and out. He gives them a picture of the future, and what that picture of the future is, is what the city should have been right now and is not. It is going to be that way one day. So what does he say to these people? Look at verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why does he say that? He says, if you would come, and instead of despising my word, but you would walk in the light of my word, what would happen? You would have this city I just described. You see how this, now you see why they go together, why this is a good fit, okay? So come, Jews, Judah, Jerusalem of chapter 1, walk in the light of the Lord. This vision of Jerusalem is showing to you, it's yours. If you would just come and stop and repent and walk in my light, you could have what I'm showing you now, okay? Now, when is this all going to happen? It says in verse 2, it says, now it will come about... In what? The last days. The word there he uses is a Hebrew word, which means the furthest back or the farthest point. Okay? So, the same word is used in Deuteronomy chapter 11 when it, he says this. He says, from the beginning of the year, even unto, here's the word, the end of the year. Okay? So, he's talking about the end, the furthest point in time that we can go. So what he's talking about is, in human history, it's going to be the furthest point we go before human history ends. When human history ends, that's when this takes place. 
the end of times. Hosea chapter 3, listen to this. Afterwards, the sons of Israel, what's going to happen? The point I'm trying to make here is, what is going to happen at the end days? Listen to what Hosea says. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in those days. That's what's going to happen at the end of time. Israel is going to come back. They're going to seek God, and they're going to worship him. And what are they going to do? They're going to come trembling before God. They're going to repent, okay? Now, look how Isaiah uses this term, in the last days. Follow with me. Follow with me in your Bible. He uses this term, the last days, in this vision six times. Follow me. And so you'll see what he's talking about when he says in the last days. Listen. In verse 2, he says, in the last days, in verse 2, he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Everything in this vision will happen in the last days. Look at verse 11. Also in the last days, this is what's going to happen. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. Here we go. And the Lord alone will be exalted, what? In that day. Verse 12. It says, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is a proud, who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Verse 17, he uses it again. And the pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of man will be abased, and the Lord will be alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 20, he uses it again. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. That's also going to happen in the last day. He uses it one more time in this vision. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, look verse 2. In that day, what's going to happen? The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. In that day, whenever I see that phrase, I hear the, or you see the Lord's day, or you hear uh, in that day, and he's talking about prophecy, one of the things that clicks in my mind is this idea that it's God's turn. You see, what's happened here is in 6,000 years of history, something has become very clear and very obvious, and what is that? Man can't do it. <laughs> We've had our chance. He's given us 6,000 years, and he's given us a lot of help, okay? He gave us 2,000 years by ourselves. What did we do? Became so corrupt and so awful that he had to destroy the world. That's what we are by ourselves. Then he brings Israel in, and Israel, he gave us the temple. He gave us the law. He gave us the prophets, and he gave us a lot of help. Even then, what happens? Man fails. Is the world one? Have we brought in the kingdom? No, no, no. We failed. Okay, he gives us another 2,000 years, and this time he gives us even more help, the church. Have we done our job? Okay, 
okay, you might win the argument, we've done better than Israel. I don't know. I don't want to touch that. We have the Holy Spirit. We have more, more uh, stuff than Israel had, okay? We still have not won this world. We have not brought in the kingdom. Guys, it's God's turn, okay? And that's what this is. Jonathan Edwards calls it the Sabbath rest, a thousand years of rest from man's efforts, okay? Guys, leave us to ourselves, and what are we going to do every time? Now, we've had our few bright spots. I'll give you that. We've had a few successes, but overall, guys, we can't do it. It's obvious. It's obvious we can't do it. Even with God's help, we fail. It's God's turn, and that's what we're doing. In that day, God's turn to do it. A thousand years with God, okay? Now, to others, it's not a big deal. It's just a fun thing to debate. But listen, I'm going to go somewhere here. A lot of people, a lot of people disagree with where I'm going in this thousand-year reign. They say this thousand-year reign is not real. It's something else. Okay, now let me give you an example here. I'll finish here. Um, I was listening to a Baptist pastor one time, and he started, uh, in his sermon, he said, uh, he started teaching something called replacement theology. So I started texting him, and we started texting back, and we started having a fun debate. He came in, he sent me a text, he says, Gary, I want to talk to you. We We talked for four hours. Once we got going, we couldn't quit. I learned a lot. He does not believe he does not believe in a thousand-year reign. He's an amillennialist, okay? Now, halfway through that four-hour talk, he stops me. He goes, uh, Gary, do you read the Old Testament? Yeah, I'm very big on the Old Testament. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't read the Old Testament. He says, why? I said, what do you mean, why? He says, you don't need to read the Old Testament. What? Why? Why read the Old Testament? The Old Testament is just about the Jews, and the Jews are gone. Church replaced the Jews. You don't need to read the Old Testament. And I says, are you serious? He said, yeah. Throw the Old Testament away. And he says, well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I says, you know, there's a lot of New Testament that talks about Jews, too. There's Hebrews. There's Romans 9 through 11. There's an, you can go on. And he goes, oh, I don't believe that either. I says, so what are you you're preaching? And he says, oh, I just want to preach these parts of the New Testament. The only the parts that have to do with the church. You know, you lose a lot. Why, why did he throw away most of the Bible? Because he was an amillennialist. Now, not everybody is that way, okay? They don't, there's a lot of amillennialists, and they don't throw away the whole Bible. But there is, I can give you example after example of where, guys, you lose a lot if you don't believe this. On the other hand, the Old Testament and the millennial reign is the reason I'm here. You back up into 1972, 1973, I was a freshman, sophomore in, in high school, a blind evangelist named Al Crocker and his C&I dog walked into church and for one week preached uh, a week of revival at Machias Valley Baptist Church in Machias, Maine, is where I was. That week of sermons, listening to Al Crocker preach nothing about except the coming kingdom, the rapture, and new Jerusalem. And then he would sing, the king is coming. Blew me away. I went up front. 
I surrendered. I had given my, I thought I was saved when I was seven years old in Hawaii, but that's when everything started for me. I walked home that night. I looked up at the stars as I'm walking home in the dark, and I said, and I was crying. I go, I don't care. I may fail you, God, but give me a chance to advance your kingdom. I gained everything. The reason I'm here is because somebody talked to me and taught me, taught me the kingdom of God. I was standing in theology class. You ever been in theology class in class? Wow, you talk about boring. Ugh. Soteriology, uh, you ever talk about soteriology and theology and Christology? And Okay, they're worthy subjects to discuss, but listen, the teacher constantly, he's the best teacher I ever had, by far my favorite teacher, but it's the most boring class I ever took. He kept having to say, he'd look at us and go, okay, guys, stretch your minds because we were all nodding off, okay? Until one time he started taking, he says, he started talking about the kingdom of God. Every week was a different subject. This week was the kingdom of God. All of a sudden, I was full of the Holy Spirit. I've never had it happen to me. He taught it again. Second time it happened. You know what? I went to work that day after class was out. I had to tell every single person that, you know, Jesus Christ is coming back. I don't care who. I had to tell everybody. I had to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. I was out of control, under the control of whatever. You know what it came from? kingdom of God. I look at what it's done for me. You know the kingdom of God, the more I learn about it, the more I want to go home. Okay? The more I want to go home. I told my son about this the other day, and he, he thought I was considering suicide. I said, Dad, how are you going to do it? No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's, not, <laughs> that, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? But listen, listen. When Paul said, it is better for me to die, that verse when I went to Bible school, I hated that verse. Oh, come on, nobody thinks like that. I do now. Now, I, I don't, I'm not suicidal. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But the only reason I stay is because I've got Luke and Marilyn and all this stuff going on. If I didn't have them, it was just me, I'd want, I already do want to check out. Guys, I want to go home. When you see, and when we get into what it's going to be like when we get home, guys, that's where we're going here. It's going to be awesome, okay? Jesus is going to be there.